All right. Every semester, the first meeting, everyone's fired up. The second meeting, everyone's still fired up. But the third meeting, everyone's tired. Some of them are at home. Yeah, see you, Fiesel. I'll give you a pass. Now, it's... Uh, Last week, I really enjoyed our time in Micah Part 1. I'm really, really looking forward to our time in Part 2 tonight as we consider the things that God wants. But I'd like to open with prayer, and then we'll dive in. Lord, we're very thankful just for the opportunity to study your word. I pray that we would always be humbled and encouraged as we stop and as we acknowledge we need more of what you have to say. We need more of truth, more knowledge that leads to that experience of you and not just thoughts about you. Lord, I'm, I'm thankful for the way that the prophets deliver, that something that in a first read-through seems kind of like a, just a downer, that as we, as we dig deeper and as we look closer, there's just treasure all through it about your character and what you want and who you are and your plan from the beginning of time to the end. So Lord, help us to to be students tonight, and help us to be worshipers tonight um, as we dive in. We love you, Lord. You are very good to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll turn to Micah. It's right after Jonah, and right before Nahum, if that helps anybody. And we will... um, we're gonna. I got a couple questions for recap from last week to see who was paying close attention. Um, what, what was the state of Judah in eighth century BC? That's an exciting question to kick the night off with. Upper middle class. Upper middle class. Upper middle class holy or upper middle class corruption? Yeah, yeah, they were wicked. What? what what was the, uh, how did their upper, upper middle class reality um, seem to foster some, some very wicked character in them? How, how did that play out? A lot of free time? Yep. What, did they, what were they doing that was bad? What was their character that wasn't holy? Planning wickedness. That is a sign that you are not following the Lord when you plan wickedness. Rather than sitting down to have a devotional, you sit down and plan wickedness. That, that's a bad sign. So they were planning wickedness. They were setting their minds and their thoughts on that which was bad, not that which was good. What else were they doing? What was the state of the family in 8th century B.C. Judah? Broken down. Why was the family broken down? They were against one another. Why were they against one another? They couldn't trust. Yeah. No one was trustworthy. It, was, it, would, it said, uh, you know, in-laws against in-laws and parents against kids. And even it said you can't even, have, can't even trust the one that you put your arm around when you lie down at night. And ideally, that's you know, your spouse. And so, so he was saying that you can't even trust your spouse. And, and why were they not trustworthy? Who were they all looking out for? 
themselves, yeah. So the, the, the state of Judah is they were very selfish, they were immoral, they were sinful. The family was dissolving, all because of this self-centeredness, where their eyes weren't on God. Their eyes were on, what can we do with the resources we have and the time we have on, on earth? And that's a very easy, like, as I look at that, it's like, that's very easy to understand. We live in America. Most people in this room are middle class, upper middle class. We can find ourselves very distracted with what are we going to do with all the resources that we have in the short time we have here on earth. I mean, you can become so focused on you know, the Amazon Prime lightning deals and, and things like that. You check them and you focused on things. You don't want to miss out on the deal. And you think, how can I get something that makes my life better and, or can be self-serving? I mean, it, that's... It's not sinful to, to, to buy things. It's not sinful to, to, to equip your, your family and, and you know, get things that make um, the work you do and the things you're called to easier. That's not a sinful thing. But, but I think it is sinful to get to a point where that, that consumes you, where that's where you spend most of your time, where that, that, that's the character uh, of your movement. So that was the, the case here at 8th century BD, uh, BC in Judah. Why was Micah not hopeless? If it was so bad, families were dissolving, no one could trust anybody... Why was Micah not hopeless? He's like, come on, Sunday school answer. God, Jesus, the cross. Yeah, in 7-7, if you're in Micah, you can turn there. In 7-7, he's just gone through this whole thing about families not being able to trust each other and the families dissolving because the upper middle class is progressing and everyone's being self-centered. And he gets to 7-7, and he says, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I'll wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Micah was not helpless and hopeless because the God of salvation still hears him and, and still wants particular things. And so that's what we started with last week. There were two things we looked at particularly, and we'll look at the third tonight, on things that God revealed that he wanted, things that God revealed as, as important to him, as priority to him. And so the two things revealed last week as God's desires that he wants us to know were what? And what? He wants wrongs to be rebuked and his people to be restored. That was our main focus last week, that God wants wrongs to be rebuked and God wants his people to be restored. And so that led us to consider, do we view wrongs in such a way that we desire, like God, for them to be rebuked? Or is sin so commonplace that we're not bothered by it the way God is? And one of the convictions that I've had as I've been reading through the prophets is that I don't think that I view sin the way God views sin. I look around and you know, we're inundated with things on TV and uh, realities on the news. I mean, most of the news when you watch it is commenting and reporting on someone's sin against someone else. Uh, most of it is that. And so that's, it may be commonplace to us, but we've got to remember the same thing that happened here is what happened in Nineveh, where the evil of the people went before God. So God is in heaven. God is on his throne. God is judging. God is watching. God is not aloof and disconnected from his people. And he does not view sin as just this commonplace thing that you kind of wink at, or some, some sins may be more acceptable and respectable than others, but there is no sin like that in God's eyes. And so if we're to view it the way he does, we need to really consider, do, do we hope wrongs will be rebuked? And some, some people are wired more towards, oh, I'll rebuke a wrong. I, that, like you, you thrive on that, like, oh, I can't wait to rebuke a wrong. Um, sometimes they're called bosses, um, but there's a lot of people that 
that love that. But then there's some that are like, man, I, 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 I hate conflict. If someone's wrong, that's their business, and, and I don't want to meddle. But neither of those would rightly represent who our God is and, and what, what, he, what he thinks about sin. Then the second one that y'all mentioned was that he wants us people restored. And so last week that really begged the question, do, do we want people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to be restored? Or is there any ethnocentrism or racism um, among us where there are particular people of a particular type or that are characteristic of a particular evil that, that we don't want to see saved? Because there shouldn't be any people that you don't want to be saved. And that doesn't, that doesn't mean we wink at ISIS and say, that's cool. You know, maybe they'll turn it around. I mean, you, you, God's view towards wickedness is, is very real, and justice is very high. Um, but we should want people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to be restored um, just as God does. So he wants wrongs to be rebuked and his people to be restored. And just to be clear, before we dive into the text for tonight, what was it that caused Israel's fall? It's an important point. What caused them to fall? Was it the strength of the Assyrians? Was it the strength of another empire? It was themselves. Yeah. That's important for us to to wrap our heads around right now as we dive into tonight's text. That the reason Israel fell, we see God bringing these woes on them and, and bringing this judgment down. It's not just because God likes bad things to happen to people. It's because they did bad things. It's because of their own sin that the society crumbled. It's because of their own sin that families weren't what God designed them to be. It's because of their own sin that marriages were fractured. It's because of their own sin that trust was hard to come by. And that people, I mean, clearly, if you think you have trust issues, imagine living in this society. They had real trust issues. I mean, that's what that means when no one can trust anyone. That's a society full of trust issues because they're not moving as God wants them to. And so the, the reason that this judgment is coming, that the prophecy is coming through Micah, is that, that they have sinned. It, it is the choices that they have made. It is their defiance against God. So keep that on the forefront of your mind as we dive into the third thing. So the first thing was God wants uh, wrongs to be rebuked. The second thing was God wants His people to be restored. And the third thing, which we're going to focus our entire time on tonight, is God wants His character to be known. God wants his character to be known. So as we've read through Micah, and I've, I've kind of highlighted some points so far, what are the two main ways, if you can choose two words, what are the two main ways that God has made himself known in the book of Micah, through the prophecy of Micah? What are two things that we see as God's making himself known? His own word. Two acts of God, two things he sh- He's showing, two things He's exercising. Judgment, yeah. And what's the other one? Anytime we talk about judgment, it's always good to talk about this other thing. Yeah, m- deliverance, mercy. Yeah, grace is being given what you don't deserve. Mercy is not being given what you do deserve. The wrath of God stores unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. So when people sin, they deserve the wrath of God because in their sin, they're suppressing truth. God's all about truth. So when we get mercy, that means we didn't get the wrath of God that we deserve because of our unrighteousness, because of propitiation, Christ absorbing that wrath. So judgment and mercy are the two things that are, that are, that are very prevalent throughout 
um, the prophecy of, of Micah. So, um, this is a very foundational thing. In, in this whole section, we're going to focus on three ways that God goes about making his character known. God really wants his character to be known. And the first way is God wants his character to be known through the acknowledgement of his supremacy. So if you're taking notes, it's something to write down. God wants his character to be known through the acknowledgement of his supremacy. What is another way of saying what I just said? He's sovereign. God wants you to know he's sovereign. What's another way to say what I said? Say that again. Hallowed be thy name. What's another way? Yeah, he is the one true God. There's no other. So, while there's mystery with God, this is something I want to just touch on real briefly as we, as we get moving on this. While there's mystery with God, I mean, obviously none of us can wrap our heads around God completely or else he wouldn't be God. While there's mystery with God, God's main goal is not to be mysterious. I, I want us to understand that. God's main goal and His existence and, and His plan and all this is not to just remain um, mysterious. And some people kind of talk about God like that. My dad, um, sometimes, I, I've called it, I've learned through the years that it's actually a, a deep level of, of genuine hum- humility, but I used to ask him questions sometimes. He'd be like, son, I don't know. I'm going to ask when I get there. That was his response. I don't know. I'll ask when I get there. Well, what about this? I don't know, buddy. I'll, I'll ask when I get there. And, and I kind of viewed it as almost like, well, that's, that's a lazy man theology. You know, you can find some answers. Um, and I got frustrated with it. But for him, it was a, a very deep level of humility and being like, man, I know that God is mysterious and I can't wrap my head around it. But what I want us to, to get as we're diving into this is God wants to be known, and He wants to be known in a particular way. So His main goal, His main focus, is not to be mysterious. His goal is to be known. But He wants to be known in a particular way, not just however you want to know Him. In fact, we're going to talk about this again on Sunday, because we're in Romans 1, in this upcoming Sunday. And it's, this started with God, and it's God's way, and we don't get to just kind of change it up as we, as we would like. And so, while there's definitely mystery with God, I want us to understand he wants to be known, and particularly on this first point, he wants to be known through the acknowledgement of his supremacy. So look at these sweet realities in Micah 4. Turn to Micah 4, 1 through 7. I just want to like dive into this imagery and enjoy it because it's amazing. Through the acknowledgement of his supremacy. I'm going to ask, how is God's supremacy revealed in these verses? That's what I'm going to ask after we read it. So, In chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, it says this, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation 
Neither shall they learn war any more, but they shall sit every man under his vine, under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken, for all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. How is God's supremacy revealed in these verses? It's quite different from the other verses about the state of Judah. Yep, there's, there's an etern, eternal reality to his, to his um, supremacy. So we will walk with him forever and ever. That's part of it. How else does he reveal it? His supremacy. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's not might come to pass. It shall come to pass. These things are certain. And that's part of the struggle that we have in our faith, is forgetting the things that are certain and acting like they're iffy, or they're sort of up for debate, or we'll just see how it all shakes out. And that's not our faith. Our faith is not we'll see how it all shakes out. Our faith is it shall come to pass. This is a reality. Our God is supreme in every way. What else? How else is his supremacy revealed in these verses? The biggest mountain. No other mountain will be as big. And what happens at that mountain? Everyone comes to it. God wants people to know that He is supreme. He doesn't want to be viewed in line with other gods and you know, everyone has their ups and downs and their, their benefits and their, their negative things. No, he is, he is supreme. What else is there? Supremacy. He'll be the judge. How's he judging? What does it say? Many peoples. What kind of people? And what kind of nations? Strong ones. Exactly. Exactly. Those are the kind of details we got to not lose sight of. Like He's saying, hey guys, the strong nations that you know about, the ones that are the strongest, I'm going to judge them. I'm going to be over them, those strong nations. Those strong nations that are really far away. Like He's, he's even appealing to our human condition of not being able to think in the same terms he thinks. And he's saying, the really strong nations, the ones that are really, really far away, yes, even them, I will exercise judgment over them. How else do, does, does he show his supremacy in these verses? War is going to turn into gardening. I love that. I wish I would have written it like that in my notes because that's poetic. War is going to turn into gardening. And, and they're no long, not only is war going to turn into gardening, they're no longer going to have to learn war. That's the, that's the horrible thing about war is you don't just get three points and move on. You have to learn it. That's, that's the state of battle. That's the state of turmoil and conflict is you can't just do what you do. You have to learn more and more about how to beat those who you're in conflict, conflict with. You have to learn more and more about how to outthink them and have better weapons and have better strategy and have better placement of people and all these different things. There's politics that play into it. There's legislation that plays into it. And all the time that we spend on legislation and developments of weapons and, and, and talks with other nations and and, and movement and watching all these different factors, all of that will be gone because God is going to make it so that there is no more war so you don't have to learn it anymore. You don't have to learn war. That's, that, that's hard for us to understand because every day we're exposed to war that's happening all over this planet. And he's saying that will not be the case when I establish my high mountain. 
Yeah, he's not going to do that by becoming the leader of the greatest nation and then utilizing the great nation to overcome the weaker nations. He's going to do it by speaking a word. And, that's what, and this is what will come to be. And then what's the result? No one's afraid. Sitting under their fig trees, not worrying. How many of you would like to sit under your fig tree and not worry anymore? I know I would. I was, I was kind of reading that. I was like, that's... I was, I was reading through it fast, and I won't learn more anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine, under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. I just think it's kind of funny imagery. Like, you're going to have your own fig tree, man, your own vine. You're going to sit under that thing, and no one's going to be able to freak you out anymore and worry you about anything. You're just going to be there and enjoy. And not, not only just sitting there, but what happens when you go to the house of the Lord, the mountain of the Lord? He's going to teach us his ways. So, beautiful imagery in this verse. Seriously, I want to encourage you all to spend some time in your devotions this week looking through this verse and thinking, thinking about what it would be like to have microphones that don't do weird things anymore and mess up the recordings. No, but spend time in your devotions thinking about this imagery and just how cool it is that this isn't a pie-in-the-sky possibility. This is our absolute reality. Sorry, <laughs> Aaron Gallon's wearing sunglasses. <laughs> the sun's like killing you, man. <laughs> I just looked up. I was like, "What are you?" Then I realized you're on fire. Yeah, that was a <laughs> glad it's not a Sunday. This would have been weird. So, um, so spend some time in that in your own devotions. Um, Dever in his notes in his survey, he says justice and peace. Which think about when they were separated when justice and peace were separated. He's saying both will be a reality because of his supremacy, justice and peace at the same time. But he said, justice and peace separated ever since sin came into the world will reign together. That's what this is a picture of. Justice and peace, when sin came into the world, separated. And here he's saying they will come back together. So according to these verses, to be clear, why are people going to the mountain of God? To do what? to learn his ways, to be taught by God. So that's, that's what happens. When justice, mercy come together, when God exercises his absolute sovereignty and supremacy over all things, people will want to learn more about him. People want to know his ways. People from every nation, tribe, and tongue will go there to be taught by him. It's a beautiful picture here. If you're worried about like heaven being boring, it's not going to be boring. You have an infinitely wonderful God that you'll continue to marvel at because you learn more about Him. You learn His ways. So here, um, we will be taught by God. And just to be clear, why do they need to be taught by God? So that they can walk in His path. So that they can walk in His way. You cannot walk in the path of God unless you're taught by God. Some of us think we can just kind of wing it and figure it out. But you've got to go to God's Word. You've got to understand what it says so that we can actually do what He says. You can't get to that last point without going to Him to be taught by Him. There's no possible way to walk in His ways. Look at chapter 7, verses 15 through 17. It says, As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. So think about that. The nations shall see and be ashamed 
of all of their might. What does might often lead to? Arrogance, pride, lording over people. And he says they will be ashamed by all of their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths and their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God and they shall be in fear of you. So what is the final aim of reality coming to bear on iniquity? What's, that, what's the thing that we're getting to? When, when, when the reality of the supremacy of God in His justice and His mercy, when He comes to bear on iniquity, those who have not turned from their ways, those who are moving in a godless manner, what's the final outcome? Trembling. Trembling that God would be feared, that God would be exalted, and that He would be trembled before. So this first thing about God wanting himself, to, his character to be made known, the first thing is that his character would be made known through the acknowledgement of his supremacy. The second thing is that God wants his character to be known through the remembrance of his righteousness. That's the, that's the second thing we see in, in, in Micah. Through the remembrance of his righteousness. God wants this to happen. Look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. It says, hear what the Lord says, arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. So the Lord has an indictment. Judah's living in a way that's not right. And so God is bringing his case to them. And this is what he says. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. These are real people who were set apart to be gods, to belong to God. And he says, How have I wearied you? Answer me. And so I think it's fitting to kind of pause there and like, what would you do there? I mean, these aren't just fake people in a story. These are real people like us who are supposed to be set apart for God. And so if you struggle with discontentment, if you struggle with complaining, if you struggle with just absolutely going after worldliness because you are not satisfied with the things of God, how would you answer that? What would, you, what would, your, respond, what would your soul do inside? How would you respond if you heard God say, how have, I wearied, how have I wearied you? You could almost picture a parent saying that to a child. Like, really? I got you out of bed. I brushed your teeth. I made your breakfast. I made your snack. I heated up your chocolate milk for exactly 35 seconds. I gave you lunch. I gave you dinner. I took you to school. I put clothes on you. That's what I bought for you. How have I wearied you, my child? Really? How have I wearied you? And that's what God's saying to his children here. He, he's wanting them to remember the same thing that you would want your kid to remember. What about the good stuff, right? Because there, there's way more of that, right? Than however you may have wearied your child. And so he goes on to say, um, answer me, exclamation point. And then he says, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt 
redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him, what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of God. What does God remind his people of in this moment? What is he reminding them of? Just to be clear. Exodus? What else? How would you characterize these things that he's reminding them of? The righteous acts of God. He's saying, there are lots of righteous acts for you to recall. And in case you forgot all of them, let me just give you a few. And it's interesting what he includes here. We could spend a whole night on just the things he chose to include here. But at the very least, he chose to include real people with real names, real kings that he's already exercised dominion over through real common fragile people and a real drawing his people out from terrible, terrible conditions when they were in slavery in Egypt. And so here God is saying, I want you to remember all that I have done in the way of your deliverance. So a thing we're noting right here is that this is why we teach our children the Old Testament. So like... I was, as I was reading through this this afternoon, again, and I was looking at it, I, I thought this is why we teach our children the Old Testament. That, that it's not just a, a bunch of moral lessons. It's not just a bunch of character studies. Like, it's not just, you know, veggie tales are fine on you know, road trips when you watch it over and over again in the back and you, ha- you know all the words and all the songs and you feel like a weird person because you do. But the, the Old Testament's not just moral lessons and it's not just character studies. The reason that we continue to teach our children those timeless stories is because God wants His character to be known through the remembrance of His righteousness. We teach our children those stories not just to get some morally moral uh, thing out of it, not just to change their behavior so they're not so annoying and frustrating, but so that they remember God because God wants His character to be made known through the remembrance of His righteousness. And so if your children don't know God's righteousness in those stories, adjust how you tell them. Focus on the details that you need to focus on. It's not just be bold like David. It's David had a really amazing God who delivered him through amaz- from like crazy problems and trials because he's so amazingly righteous. And so here, that, that's the reason we teach our children. It's just worth noting that it's not just for behavior modification and and moral issues and moral lessons. So here's the deal. What was it about God's acts that he once remembered? It may, be, it may seem like I'm straining in that here, but like I really want us to get this. What was it about God's acts that he wanted to be remembered? That they were what? That they're righteous. How might this affect how we minister to one another? Because we've been entrusted with a ministry of reconciliation, we walk with one another, comforting one another with the comfort with which God has comforted us, spending and being spent gladly on one another's souls. How does this little reality about how God wants himself to be made known, how will that help you in ministering to other people? Or how will it help you in being ministered to by other people? Mm-hmm. 
all the good things I've done. Yeah. Like not you stink and I hate yeah. you, which he says other places, but yeah. the indictment he had was you're not remembering the awesome things I've done for you. Yeah. So, the, I mean, the reason he does that, the reason when God brings an indictment saying, you're not remembering what I'm doing for you, is he's not just addressing the behavior. He's addressing the heart issue. He's saying, your heart has turned from me. And he wants them to, he wants, remember, he wants his people to be reconciled. So he's bringing them back by saying, look at what I have done. You will know me. You will know my character if you don't forget how I've brought you through such things. So, in ministering to other people, how might that help you? Yeah. And once you know how the story is going to end, you can be bold getting to that point. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. If it, we, you're on the winning team. <laughs> That's a helpful reality when you're having a really bad day. Um, when someone else is struggling with something, it's helpful to know exactly, as Jason just said, how, how it's going to end. So what are some things you might do to help someone who is struggling with sin? Yes. Who is annoyed when people do that? That that I mean, I'm sitting here looking at it, going, "All right." So we minister to one another, struggling with sin. If someone sits with me and says, "I understand you're struggling with this, but you remember the story of, of David and Daniel," and I, I would probably be annoyed. I'd be like, "Look, man, I'm not a third grader. This is real life stuff. I'm a grown man," and I'd probably get frustrated. But the reality is one of the ways that we can best minister to each other is to remind each other of the righteous acts of God. That's how God wants to be made known. If we're in the middle of a struggle, it's not because of the struggle. It's because of how we are responding to the realities of God within the struggle. And so the thing at hand is not just the thing at hand. The thing at hand is something that is supposed to teach you something about yourself and about God and grow you and sanctify you and make you more like Christ. And so it's completely and totally fitting when you're struggling with sin, when someone else is struggling with sin, when there's a trial, to say, man, let's let's go to the Word. Let's go to these Old Testament realities. Let's go to the New Testament. Let's look at how God delivered everyone from the the apostolic fathers to the prophets to our forefathers way back at the beginning, everyone in between, and look at what He did. Because that quickens us, that steals us, that makes us more in tune with what we're supposed to be in tune with, which is God and His righteous acts. So it should, that helps us to minister to others, and it should also help us to be ministered to. If someone says, well, this does remind me of, of story whatever, for you not to go and roll your eyes as if you, you don't have anything better. No, they don't have anything better. It's the righteous acts of God. And so that should help us to be ministered to. It should help us to minister to others. I also thought, how might this affect us if we feel that God is dealing harshly with us? Anyone ever struggled with that? I have. I feel like God's dealing harshly. Where I'm like, oh, what? Can I take any more? How might this reality help us? His provision is faithful. How might else it help us? Yeah, unchanging. He's way more consistent than you are. See, this is where we can get on a little slippery slope because some of y'all might have thought and didn't want to say it out loud, 
When I say, how might this affect us if we feel that God is dealing harshly with us? You might have thought, well, we suck, we're sinners, we're terrible at life, we're, we're, we deserve wrath, we're no good, we're scum of the earth. But that's not actually where God goes. He, he wants you to be in, in eyes wide open to His goodness. It, it will give you a sober perspective. Um, but it's not just because of how bad you are. That's the thing. Like Sometimes we just focus on how bad we are and totally lose sight of the only reason there's even a gauge for that is because of how good God is. We don't compare ourselves to one another. That's biblically stupid. So we're supposed to look at God. And so th- this is... Um, it gives us a sober perspective and it allows us to utilize what God would have for us when we're ministering to one another, when we're being ministered to, and if we feel like we're going through a hard trial that you feel like God's being harsh. He's not harsh. He's righteous. He's perfectly righteous all the time, always has been. He's full of judgment, full of mercy. For those who repent, that's a really good thing. The third thing is that God wants his character to be made known through the demonstration of his mercy. We've already talked about this some, but I want to make it real clear here as we... Uh, wrap up this study. God wants his character to be known through the demonstration of his mercy. Look at chapter 7, verses 18. We've already read the previous ones. Verses 18 through 20, the very end of the book. Who is a God like you? I mean, remember, remember what the rest of the book has been about. Micah prophesying to a sinful Judah because everything is so horrible. The society's so horrible. The families are broken. The upper middle class is running amok, being completely self-serving, lost sight of all God's righteous movement, lost sight of how God wants to be made known, lost sight of the need for wrongs to be rebuked. They've lost sight of the, the, the reality that God wants people to be um, reconciled to Him. They don't care about any of those things. And here is how Micah ends this. He says, Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. That should be familiar language if you've been listening to the recent sermons. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Not us, our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So to be clear, what is it that God's compassion liberates us from? Yeah, our sins. The tyranny of our own sin. God's compassion liberates you from the tyranny of your own sin. Who is forgiven in verse 18? The remnant of what? So remember, we learned in Ephesians that there's this reality that we have an inheritance with God, but also with God, we are His inheritance. That's how, that's why He cares so much about us being His people. Remember, the pro- we're going to talk about this on Sunday, but the prophecies, so many of them, I will be your God, you will be my people. I will be your God, you will be my people. So here, the remnant of his inheritance are the ones who are forgiven. Why? Why? 
for His glory? Why would they be forgiven? Because He delights in steadfast love? What's a key component to being referred to as a remnant of the inheritance? As part of his, yeah, it was his original covenant. He will absolutely keep a people through the rise and fall of every empire, like we talked about last week. But why would, why would they be a remnant? What has he caused? What's he worked in their hearts? Faith. Repentance. Like, that's the thing here. He's not just saying, well, all right, well, you know, you guys are a terrible nation. I, I guess I'm just going to, I'll take what I can get. That's not God's approach. It's not, I'll take what I can get. He calls them to repentance. And if there's a remnant of his inheritance, the remnant exists because of a work that he's done in their hearts to change, to not continue in the ways they were, being totally self-serving, not caring about family, not able to trust anybody. Some of them changed. Some of their hearts were changed, so their, their, their behavior followed suit, and they quit doing the things they were doing before. So God liberates us from the tyranny of, of, of our sins, and there's a forgiven remnant of the inheritance. The remnant are those who genuinely fear God. So the question is, do you genuinely fear God? Or do you view Him in a lighter manner? Because you're not supposed to view him in a lighter manner. Do you fear God? That's who the remnant of the inheritance is. Those who fear God and repent of their sins, seeking forgiveness and redemption nowhere else other than God. So the question would be, is this your view? Or is there any part of you that feels like it's God's job to forgive you? Ben's talked about that in a recent sermon too. Do you feel like it's his job to forgive you? That's what he does. Because that's a light view of God. And you shouldn't have that. So Scripture rounds it out by showing us that we should view sin as He views sin. And one way that happens is making sure He's known through the demonstration of His mercy. God ultimately forgives because of who He is. You see, that it says, Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression. Who is a God like you? So God ultimately forgives because of who He is. So my question for you would be, how does this affect your view of forgiving others when you've been wronged? Say that again. Yeah. Yeah, what are we? It should spur us to forgiveness. What are we? What are we called from the beginning? Created in whose image? Your image bearers. So if we see this reality, who is, who is a God like you pardoning iniquity? God ultimately forgives because of who he is. So how should this affect us when we need to forgive others who have wronged us? We need to consider this imagery of being an image bearer. That's who God is. Like you can look at someone and, and they, if they say, I wronged you, will you forgive me? You should be thinking, well, that's who God is. So that's who I need to be. I need to forgive and not sit and hold a grudge or be bitter. If someone seeks that, there's a transaction that has to happen. If they seek that forgiveness because they, com- they confess they're wrong, you forgive every single time. And it's, and it's all because of who, who God is, because we're image bearers. So two important questions that I want us to consider. 
do you believe that God delights to show mercy? It's a question we're thinking about. We may not have a lot of discussion about it. But do you believe that God delights to show mercy? Because I think some of us might have a view of God where we don't see Him as delighting in being a merciful God. And if, if you do, how, how does that affect your religion and your life? If you believe... In fact, let's discuss that a little bit. If you believe that God is a God who delights to show mercy, how should that affect your religion and life? See, I eliminated the possibility that someone's uncomfortable because they don't feel that way. But if you did feel that way, how should that affect our religion and our life? If you, if you believe that God delights to show mercy... Yeah, Be, quit, quit beating yourself up, trying to come up with some kind of penance. It changes every interaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every interaction kids, yep. Yeah. Every interaction with every person. If I believe God delights to show mercy, why would we not be among the most patient people in the earth? I am, it does not take much for a four-year-old to make me flip my lid and need to be brought back to the river of well-being. Like, I, I can, it doesn't take much. And, and, and a, a child can do it. I'm a grown man, and I can have a child turn me upside down in two seconds because of something they do. That's, that's not right. That's not, uh, that's not a testimony that I share for you to go and do likewise. That's more of a, a, a confession in front of people being honest. But I'm sitting here reading this, I'm going... He's a God who forgives because of who He is. He's a God who delights to show mercy. Why am I not really, really hard to unseat? Why am I not more patient? Why am I not really slow to anger? Why am I not more quick to hear? It it should affect, like, like you said, every interaction. Kids, spouses, friends, strangers. The next question is, has to do with that, and, and write it down, think through it in your own time. Do you believe that people can change? That's another thing here. I mean, God is moving on the premise that He's going to change some people. A remnant of the inheritance is people He will change. He will have an effect on their hearts that will result in different life, different behavior. And so, do you believe people can change? If not, Why? Are you arrogant? Do you think you're above them? Are you bitter? Are, do, do you think it's a pipe dream to think people can actually change? I remember a friend um, once telling me, he said, he said, uh, you know, I just, I believe there's only really two kinds of people within all these friendships we have. Either people who help others or people who are just a drain on others. And I looked at him and said, do you find me helpful? <laughs> if it's one or the other, and there's absolutely nothing in between. There's no mutual encouragement building one another up if it's one or the other. And so here it's like, can people change or not? Because if you don't believe people can change, you will be a terrible bearer of gospel good news. Evangelism will not be your high point if you don't believe people can change. There's no point in sharing the gospel if you think, well, people are how they are. I'm never, they're never going to change. I'm not going to do anything to try. 
Well, people definitely change. That's the beauty of the gospel. If you believe in Jesus, you changed. Like, you, didn't, you were born that way. You didn't come out, I love Jesus. I'm always going to love Jesus. I'm never going to get caught up in iniquity. If you believe in Jesus, you are a person who has changed. And if we are changed people, we should be among those who trumpet the possibility of people changing. If so, how would this affect the way we respond when we see sin in someone else's life? If you see sin in someone else's life, and you believe that they can change, my thought was that, at the very least, accountability would certainly be of heightened importance. You'd want to put something in place to help change come about. Um, you would rebuke wrongs. You would hold forth what God desires. But you would also never do that in a hopeless way. Remember last week we talked about how God's words in Micah are very ominous. We didn't stop there. He, he brings prophecy that's full of hope. And that should affect your parenting too. It shouldn't just be ominous. You're going to get the wrath of dad if you don't do what I said. There should be hope there. There should be something lighter that it ends with that's encouraging. Not lighter, but more encouraging, more, more true to life. So we should desire what God desires, particularly rebuking of wrongs, restoration of sinners, and God's character to be put on display. Um, so an application to close with. Look at Micah 6. And we're going to close with this quickly. I'm going to clear this, this little Micah 6, verse 6. It says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Will ten thousands of, will, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And look at this. I mean, this is like screaming at you what the application point is with Micah. He's told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? <clears throat> but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. There's so much wrapped up. To do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. Those three things embody your, your movement with the Lord in that relationship, your movement with others in relationship, your view of sin, your view of the possibility of redemption. Those three things. You should put it on your cubicle, put it on your refrigerator. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. It's very, very personal. You might ask, in what ways are you not humbling yourself before God and submitting to this authority? How does acting justly reveal what God desires? How does loving mercy reveal what God desires? How does walking humbly with God reveal what God desires? Dever, in his notes, he, he makes the point, he says, loving justice and mercy reflects God's own character. Choosing humility acknowledges and displays his supremacy. What we're seeing here is that these things, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God, connect to these desires that God has shown. He, he said, I, I want wrongs to be rebuked. Well, if you do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God, wrongs are going to be rebuked. He, he wants, what was the second one? Anyone remember? He wants wrongs to be rebuked. What was the other one? He wants his people to be restored to him. Well, if you do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God, people will be restored to God. And then what is the third one? God wants his character to be made known. If you do justice and walk and love kindness and walk humbly with your God, ultimately it is, it is an absolute reality that God's character will be made known in that. 
But it's not finally about our work. It's about the work of a Messiah. Look at chapter 5, verse 1, and we'll read this and we'll, we'll be done with this because it's just beautiful. It says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So things are going to go bad for Judah because of their sin. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, Ephrathah, um, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the return of his brothers shall return to the people. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. If you look close enough, every single book gets to the point about Jesus. And that's, I mean, it's pretty obvious. Bethlehem, she who is in labor, the one who will be a shepherd, who will rule, who will be their peace, um, is all about Christ. The Old Testament prophets, both minor and major, all prophesied the coming of Christ as the Messiah. The small detail in Israel's history was that you know, he was the offspring of David. King David came from Bethlehem, and it was uh, prophesied that one day a Redeemer and Messiah would come from Bethlehem. It is so like God to use the seemingly inconsequential people and places to absolutely shake the foundations of the world. It underscores who is behind the work, who you belong to, who um, is your king. We should remember this when we're struggling with feelings of futility and with feelings of ins- insignificance. Dever notes, God's love for his people is amazing because of our faithless response to his perfect faithfulness to us. A deeper understanding of God's judgment leads to a deeper understanding of his love and faithfulness. What I want us to see in closing as we hear the prophet saying, guys, judgment's coming. What I want us to see as we close is that at the very least, if a deeper understanding of God's judgment leads to a deeper understanding of his love and faithfulness, then those who scoff at the idea of judgment will have little reverence and appreciation for God's love and faithfulness. You do not have to look far to find examples of that. The world, in large part, scoffs. God's going to judge. Right. I'll judge. And for those who scoff at God's judgment, very little reality that they're going to find any kind of comfort in His faithfulness and in His love and in His goodness. The prophecy of Micah should sober us, align us with God, and make us patient as we live in a world that is sure to endure and suffer God's discipline as we wait in hope for the next. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful for the prophets. I'm thankful that, gosh, we just have so much that tells us the truth. We have so much that tells us reality. We have so much that tells us this timeless story and that we're wrapped up in as our story individually is the story of a people. It's not individual, it's corporate. Lord, we love you very much. I pray that Um, These things that we've looked at in Micah would uh, challenge us, would encourage us, would sober us, would quicken us, and ultimately that we would want what you want. Particularly that we would want wrongs to be rebuked, that we would want people to be reconciled to you, and that we would want you to be known, your character to be made known through these three things we consider tonight. We love you, Lord, and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a good evening.